You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. Well, the 2022 federal election voting day is almost upon us. This has been a relatively dismal campaign for ventilating and illuminating in detail the parties and the independents' actual policies. There's a kind of media lip service paid to the theory that in our democracy we should get to judge whom to vote for around their policies. But the reality, sadly, is otherwise. We, as citizens, are left mostly in the dark with broad generalisations and abstractions wrapped in slippery promises. However, in this last week of the election campaign, the great steaming mess that is the housing crisis in Australia, including home affordability, homelessness, rental stress and the acute shortage of housing stock has become a slightly more prominent point of contention between the Coalition and Labor. Unfortunately, their actual policy focus has been very narrow. You could say almost paltry. Peter Mayers is a leading researcher and writer on the housing crisis in Australia. His book, No Place Like Home, Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis, was published in 2018. Peter is Program Director with the Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership. Peter Mayers, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thanks very much, Peter. Now, you probably remember when we last spoke on a podcast, it was during the last federal election campaign around the content of your then recently published book, no Place Like Home, Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis. But reading your more recent writing, it seems that the last three years has even further shifted the ground under housing policy in Australia, especially in the provision of social housing. So just to help frame our conversation, which is going to be quite detailed, what has happened more recently in your view and in your analysis in the area of social housing and what the social housing landscape looks like during this federal election campaign? Well, let me start by saying the big differences between this election in 2022 and the previous election in 2019 is the Labor Party is going to the election without a policy to reform negative gearing in the capital gains tax discount. Now, that affects the big housing ecosystem, if you like, rather than social housing in particular. But it does mean that Labor is foregoing some $5 billion a year plus in revenue savings that it would get by reforming those policies and which he could then those tax concessions and which he could then use to invest in social housing that is in building and what do we mean by social housing we mean building homes that people on the lowest incomes can afford to rent by paying just up to maximum of 30% of their income so if you're on a disability pension if you're on JobKeeper, if you're on the age pension, you never pay more than 30% of your income in rent if you're living in social housing. So what's happened since the last election also is that we've seen the further decline of social housing in Australia because states and territories aren't building more social housing. They're barely building enough to keep up with the numbers that are sold or demolished. At the same time, of course, the population has grown dramatically. So the proportion of social housing to population has continued to fall as it's been doing for more than 20, well, more than 25 years now. And I guess the other thing more recently, we've seen various types of election promises from both sides, a big focus on helping first home buyers into the market, which doesn't help people on the lowest incomes, of course, a shared equity scheme from the Labor Party, perhaps a more useful offering. Labor does have its housing future fund proposal, which would see a limited number, a limited number of social houses or social homes, um, affordable homes for people on the lowest incomes being built uh, if Labor were elected. Yes, let's dive into those more generalised housing policies within this election campaign a little bit further on in our conversation. But I've been reading that paper that you put out recently, and you mentioned in that paper a 1998 parliamentary research paper that issued a four-point warning about shifting from actually building social housing to rent assistance, and that that could run into fundamental problems. What did they foreshadow then back in 1998? 
And how accurate were they? How's it played out? Well, it was pretty accurate, I'd say, a pretty clear warning that has proved to be true. Let me just clarify the distinction we're making here between social housing and rent assistance. So social housing is what we saw developed after World War II. In particular, people will be in Victoria would be familiar with the Victorian Housing Commission, as it was called then in South Australia, the Housing Trust of South Australia, similar organisations in other states. And in that period of post-war reconstruction, we saw an agreement, a Commonwealth State Housing Agreement, originally between the Labor government that was in office, but then continued under the Menzies government that took office in 1949. Ten-year agreement between the Commonwealth and the states and territories, under which the Commonwealth would lend the money, lend the states and territories money for them to invest in building social housing. And we saw quite a dramatic growth of housing being built by governments or financed by governments in that time. So according to the one estimate I've seen, on average 15,000 houses a year being built around Australia, which is far more than we build now, probably um, three or four times what we build now. And the idea was that government had a role to play in the provision of homes, affordable homes for people on the lowest incomes. We've shifted then in the mid-90s to, as you describe it, rent assistance, called formerly called Commonwealth rent assistance. And the government basically partly an ide ideological shift and partly a, a kind of practical shift to say, well, rather than building houses for people, let's help them to pay the rent and let them choose where they want to live. So it's a, that's what I mean by an ideological shift. The idea being that we should give people the choice of where they want to live rather than telling them you've got to live in this housing commission house or whatever, and we'll supplement their income so they can choose where they want to live in the private market, just renting from a private landlord. So this parliamentary paper at the time, and as you say, in 1998, the author said, this assumes that there'll always be enough affordable private rentals to go around. That was the first assumption. This paper was based on looking at what had happened in other countries under similar policies. I think they looked at New Zealand, Germany, the UK, maybe somewhere else as well. And they said this wasn't a safe assumption. It wasn't safe to assume that the private market would provide sufficient homes that low-income renters could afford. And indeed, as we now know, that's proven to be the case. So anyone following the news lately would have registered that I think it was last week or, or maybe the week before that Anglicare released its um, rental affordability snapshot. So they survey, I think, 60,000 rental listings around the country and they work out who could afford to rent them. And they found that none of these rentals were affordable for people on job seeker, for example, on unemployment benefits. Maybe 1% were affordable for someone on the age pension. Barely any affordable for a single parent. Even people living on the minimum wage could barely afford. There's hardly any houses available for people on the minimum wage. So that was warning number one, that the private market wouldn't necessarily provide enough affordable housing for low-income earners. And indeed, that's been proven true. So that was the first warning of that paper. Another warning of that paper was that if the social housing stock declined, so if there was less and less social housing as a, a share of uh, compared to the size of the population, then increasingly that social housing would be triaged, if I can put it that way. That is, it would go to those people in the most desperate circumstance. And that makes sense. If you're going to have a limited supply of social housing, it should go to those who, who are most urgently in need. And indeed, we've seen, again, in all our um, housing commissions around Australia, they've started to triage in that way so that you have long waiting lists, 150,000 households around Australia on the waiting list for social housing. So it's households. So we're talking more than probably 250,000 people because there's kids and partners and all that, 150,000 households, and they get then classified as to the level of urgency of their need. So if you're fleeing domestic violence, you're an urgent case um, or high priority case, as it might be called. Or if you have a severe disability, you'd be a high priority case. Or if you have maybe uh, a mental, uh, a cognitive disability or, or uh, a mental illness or living with mental ill health, all those sorts of things. So what this paper back in 1998 warned is that the smaller the stock of housing, social housing became, the more, if I can use this term, residualized it would become. And the more you would concentrate disadvantage 
in social housing. And that then serves to create problems and concentrate problems in social housing as well. And we see the negative public perception of social housing emerging out of this. Now, it's often an unwarranted negative perception, but it's there. You get an incident played up by the media and all the rest of it. So you get this view that social housing is undesirable and you get social problems compounded by the concentration and disadvantage. And that also makes it much harder to build social housing because everyone says, well, I don't want to live near social housing. And we see that phenomenon as well. Uh, so those are two of the things they warned about. There is the aspect, isn't there, that it is quite a low amount that you get for rent assistance. And some people within low-income occupations like aged care, which is in the spotlight at the moment, find it very hard to meet the market in terms of rental. Was that one of the other warnings? Yes, indeed it was, Peter. Another warning was that the level of rent assistance that the Commonwealth was providing may not keep pace with the level of rent rises. And again, this is exactly what has happened. The Commonwealth rent assistance is indexed as payments like JobSeeker are indexed, but they're not indexed in a way that takes account of differences of the increase in rents. So we've seen, there was a, a big report done for the Commonwealth Treasury on retirement incomes, and they looked at rent assistance and they found that rents had risen at twice the rate of rent assistance. So rents had gone up over the last 20 years at about double the rate that rent assistance had risen. So if you're relying on that rent assistance as a supplement to your low income, it's becoming a smaller supplement in proportional terms as time's gone on. The result of that is, is what's called rental stress. In other words, you're paying an ever larger share of your overall income just to keep a roof over your head. The result of that, of course, is that you're pushed into poverty because you can't not pay the rent, right? Everyone, everyone has to pay the rent. So you scrimp on other things. You stop buying healthy food. You buy the cheapest food you can. You stop turning on the heater. Some people I've heard only turn on the hot water once a week for a shower and otherwise keep it off to save money. You don't go out because you can't afford to pay your public transport fares or fill up your car with petrol. You don't use your mobile phone or you can't top it up or it runs out and you have to go without your phone, which is a, obviously in today's day and age, not just a key communication device to keep in contact with friends and family, but a necessary device for you to be contacted by services and all the rest of it. So that's indeed one of the other things that this paper warned about. And then one of the other things that has come to pass that the level of rent assistance has failed to keep up with the rising rents. People are pushed ever deeper into poverty. I want to drill down a little further into that supply and demand equation. You've said quite clearly, and we know it's true, that shifting to rent assistance hasn't produced a corresponding response, building more stock, affordable stock for people in low incomes and on welfare pensions, etc. What's going on there? Has there been in any other part of the world a more entrepreneurial, more creative response to forging quite different forms of accommodation for people in those circumstances? Is it just money here, just the quantum of money required to build and the rentals required? Is it just the market at work? Mostly it is about money, as in, as people in the housing sector like to say, you can't have subsidised housing without a subsidy. There's a gap between what it costs to build and operate housing and the rents that people on the lowest incomes can afford to pay. So you could solve the problem another way. And we saw this when in the pandemic, when JobSeeker was doubled, people all of a sudden could afford to pay their bills, could afford to pay off their debts, could afford to pay their rent and had enough money to get by. So if you doubled or dramatically increased the level of government payments, pensions, disability pensions, all the rest of it, then that would certainly be one way of helping to address the problem. Not enough spending, whether it's on Commonwealth rent assistance to lift incomes or whether it's on investment in building new housing, it all costs money. We hear a lot about, well, there's all this trillions of dollars in superannuation funds and couldn't the superannuation funds invest in social housing? The super funds would love to invest in social housing, but they have a fiduciary duty to make sure we get a return on our retirement savings. So they'll only do it if, again, there's a subsidy that bridges that gap between what it will cost to build and operate the housing and the rental income and maintain it and the rental income that people can afford to pay. Money is really fundamental here. Having said that, 
some countries do a much better job than Australia. An example is Finland, and we all often turn to the Scandinavian countries, but Finland does do a better, better job. And there are all sorts of other differences that make it maybe more possible to do things in Finland than we can do here. So there's a lot of, for example, local government involvement with local governments having land that can be put to social purposes. You know, we have a different structure of government and, and I would say one of our challenges here is creating better alignment between federal, state and local government levels so that we get better planning and coordination. And there are examples here, I know in Melbourne, of councils that are designating land that they're not using and saying, let's put social housing here. But they're fairly small piecemeal efforts rather than a coordinated strategy that draws federal government investment together with local government initiatives. I'm wondering too, Peter, whether design is part of the factor here. You can rethink the whole way you build social housing with community solar, for example, lots of other pooling of resources within the overall accommodation. But that that's design. Yeah, and there's really good examples of what you might call the low-hanging fruit. So an example, a very innovative organisation is Brisbane Housing Company, which is a not-for-profit. One of the things they did was they there's a whole lot of older Australians, older Brisbane residents living alone in social housing that was built for families and that they might have lived in indeed with their family, often older women, now finding themselves living alone in a house with two or three bedrooms and a backyard and a garden and on a ground floor and actually feeling quite insecure or feeling not very safe or feeling overwhelmed by the housework or the gardening and all the rest of it. You know, still that's their home and so not necessarily really wanting to leave, but they went to a group of people and said, what would you think about moving into a purpose-built development where you'd have your own, still have your own place, but it would have security and it'd be completely accessible, so lifts and wide walkways and things. So if you're walking on crutches or maybe in a wheelchair, you can get in and out really easily. There'd be shared facilities like gardens and barbecues and a room for yoga or meetings or that sort of thing. And basically, they built this really cargo house, it's called, beautifully designed, designed for the Queensland climate. So flow-through ventilation, no need for air conditioning, shading, oriented to the sun and the shade for different times of year. A really successful building, but units. So I think it was medium, medium rise. So maybe four stories at most. In building that one thing, they freed up all the properties, all these individual properties that were big enough to house families or which could be then sold and reinvested in building more social housing. There are sensible things that can be done that draw together design and which plan for a changing climate, which we need to plan for, which use existing resources and multiply them, as it were, to create more social housing. But it's not enough. I mean, those initiatives are really good and really positive, but on their own, they're not enough without additional investment to create, simply build more social housing. Apropos that description, you and I both live here in Melbourne, Peter, and during the 30 or so years I've lived here, I've been able to, and perhaps you too, I've been able to chart the demolition or sale of various forms of social housing from those big apartment towers that we all knew so well before they were brought to the to the ground to standalone homes in suburbs near me, such as West Heidelberg. And private developments take their place, much of it in that rapid accommodation building boom here in Melbourne we've all seen. Just explain for us further that move from public to private and what that implies and what the overall effects of that is. There's various um, ways in which that happens. One is that there have been schemes whereby social housing residents can buy or public housing residents. So when we distinguish between social housing and public housing here too, social housing is a broad term, applies, applies to any housing where people only pay that fixed proportion of their income, less than 30%. Uh, public housing is when it's actually owned by the government, as in those housing commission housings. But community housing is now in increasingly common where it's a not-for-profit like the Brisbane Housing Company or a for-purpose organisation, um, you know, launch housing. There's a whole lot now. Um, and I'm agnostic as to whether public housing or community housing is better. For me, that doesn't really matter. The key thing is that people have their rent fixed at a level they can afford and have ideally wraparound services when they need them and those sorts of things. 
So we've seen, on the one hand, we've seen a lot of social housing sold off. We've seen this particularly in South Australia where uh, existing residents are encouraged or invited to, and, and we saw this, of course, under Thatcher's Britain, encouraged to buy their own, buy the social housing unit or home that they're already living in. So that's one way in which social housing becomes privatised and isn't necessarily replaced. In theory, the revenue raised from that process should go back into building more social housing. But in South Australia, at least, a case I, I've looked at a bit more in a bit more detail, we saw that money siphoned off into consolidated revenue. So rather than go back into increasing the housing stock or maintaining the existing stock. The other thing that's been happening, and this is more um, in Victoria and New South Wales, it may be happening elsewhere, is that where you've got existing social housing stock that really does need to be upgraded. So often stuff that was built in the 50s and 60s, it's now not really fit for purpose. For example, in the 50s and 60s, we were mostly building social housing for families. The biggest need in social housing now is for people living alone. We also need increasingly housing that is accessible for people with disabilities, people as they age, people who, who are not fully mobile. And a lot of the old housing wasn't like that. It might have been, you know, we're familiar with the old walk-ups, two or three-storey walk-up social housing. Well, that a lot of people can't use that housing because they need a lift to get up the stairs and instead of going up the stairs. So that housing does need to be rebuilt, demolished and rebuilt. And often you can design and get more housing on the site than you had before. The problem has been a tendency to bring in private developers as a way to finance this. And so to say to the developers, well, you can have some of this land to, for your own development as long as you build social housing on the site as well. In the Victorian case, the original promise was there had to be a 10% increase in the number of social housing dwellings. Now, to my mind, a 10% increase is not ambitious, anywhere near ambitious enough, if essentially what you're also doing is privatising forever land that is otherwise held in public hands. That's a one-off opportunity. And often this is well-located land, as in it's you know, close to services and transport, it might be quite in a city like Carlton in Victoria. So if you're gonna sell that land, you really want to get a really good premium for it, not just a 10% increase in the number of social housing dwellings, particularly when you're replacing two and three bedroom dwellings with one bedroom dwelling. So in fact, you may get fewer bedrooms overall than you started off with. So there are real problems, I think, in that public-private model, but it does remain true that those older social housing dwellings often do need to be redeveloped. And that's very distressing for the long-term residents who are there because they, in the interim, they do have to move somewhere else. You know, in theory, they're guaranteed they'll be able to come back to their existing house, but it doesn't always work that way. Great deal of upheaval if you've been living somewhere 20, 30 years, if you're older. It's never a straightforward process, and I don't envy governments who do have to do that sort of redevelopment. But if they're going to do it, and if they're going to involve private industry, that should be really, really ambitious and negotiate really, really hard with private industry to get a really good deal. In what kind of circumstances are those citizens seeking social housing? Quite a spread, I guess. Yeah, quite a spread. So uh, as I said earlier, there are around 150,000 households around Australia on social housing waiting lists. So that means these are people who are eligible for social housing basically because they don't have a, a high enough income or they have a low income, so therefore they're eligible for social housing. I mean, depending how you quantify the demand, I mean, the the research done by the City Futures Research Centre at the University of New South Wales found that the shortfall of social housing is about 430,000 dwellings. That's what's missing. And that this will rise to 750-odd thousand if we don't address the shortage So you know, over the next 20 years. So... There's a massive shortfall. Now, there are various different ways of, of calculating this, of course, as to who needs social housing. But there are about a million households in rental stress. So rental stress, again, that means you're paying more than 30% of your income is going on your rent. And I have to stress this is only if you're on a low income. So this is people in the bottom 40% of households by income. So if you're in the bottom 40% of households by income, and if you're paying more than 30% of your income, that income on rent, then you're technically in rental stress. And that means, you know, you're going to be 
not have enough money for, for necessities. And it's often the case that people are spending 50% or 60% of their household income on rent. So it's much worse. So there are gradations, obviously. There are at least a million households in the private rental sector in that circumstance. So, you know, the, the housing crisis is very, very real. I have a family member who works at Lifeline. He's, um, he's a psychologist. He says every session he works, he has at least two people talking to him about the problem they've rung up about is really linked to their housing because they're living in their car because they can't find a place because they're, they're, they're you know their tenancy is ending and they have nowhere to go housing is a huge huge problem and it's really depressing in my view and it's a particularly a problem for renters i know people may be struggling to pay their mortgages and that's a whole another issue or they may be wanting to get into the housing market and buy their own home and absolutely understand that. I mean, I'm a homeowner, so I, I appreciate the, the security that brings and all the rest of it. But if we're really talking about the pointy end of the crisis in Australian housing, it's low-income renters in the private market. That's where the, the huge problem is, or, or those who indeed can't find a home at all. It's depressing or it's distressing to me that this is not getting more attention as part of the election campaign. Do we have any handle at all in the data on how many children overall are affected? The children are slightly hidden in all this, aren't they? They are because we have applications by household for, for housing assistance or we get overall data on homelessness or who's visiting, you know, who's going to a special homelessness service for, for assistance. But we see a very large number of children, uh, often uh, children in single parent families. So often, of course, one of the reasons they end up in a going to um, a specialist homelessness services because uh, the family is fleeing a violent partner, a violent father. And so, you know, domestic violence is a big cause of driving children into homelessness. We also see a lot of young people independently leaving homes, again, because of uh, conflict of home or um, violence at home. We do see a very high presentation rate of children, uh, often accompanied by a parent and of adolescents, young people, forced out on their own well before they should need to be because they can't find housing and they're not safe at home. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark. Our guest is Peter Mayers, author of No Place Like Home, Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis. During election campaigns like the one we're in, we often hear politicians of all stripes talk about the increase in the millions or billions of dollars they've thrown at particular perceived social problems, such as housing. What's been happening on the federal expenditure side as an absolute quantum in the social housing budget line? I'm assuming a bit of an increase because of population growth, etc. What's been happening there? Well, actually, the spend on social housing has been pretty well flatlining. But again, this is it gets complicated because we're looking at a distinction between federal and state governments. So the amount of money that the federal government commits per year under its agreement with the states and territories has been going down actually overall. And that's a mixture of funding. It's, it's funding for social housing, it's funding for specialist homelessness services and, and so on. But as a quantum, the, the money from the federal government has been Flatlining, as I say, then and as a proportion of spending or um, comparison to population has been going down. On the other hand, we do see states and territories stepping in off their own bat, as it were. So the Victorian government, for example, has um, a program worth more than $5 billion to build social housing. And to put that in perspective, I mean, this, the Victorian government is planning to spend over four years about in, in just in the state of Victoria, about the same amount that the Rudd government spent on social housing as a stimulus measure in the global financial crisis in 2008. So we're talking in, in, in the realm of $5.4 billion. So this is a very big investment for a state to make. You know, it's a welcome investment. Victoria is uh, rates of social housing are well below the national average. It's declined in Victoria more than in many other states and territories. So it's a, it's a game of catch-up. And even with that big and welcome investment by the Victorian state government, it won't really 
do a great deal to reduce the 50,000, you know, there's 50,000 on the Victorian waiting list alone, 50,000 households. It won't really make a dent in that, in that list. Uh, it'll stop it growing at best. You know, so we do see Tasmania is also investing, New South Wales is also investing. What's missing here is the Commonwealth has the taxing powers, right? The Commonwealth is the arm of government that can raise revenue most easily or borrow most easily. And we don't see a coordinated approach under which the Commonwealth funds the states and territories to invest in, in social, um, social housing. You mentioned Kevin Rudd's government there a few moments ago, and I guess many of us remember his passing focus on homelessness. How much actual real-world homelessness is flowing from this part of the housing and rental crisis? And I'm assuming, again, it's an upward trend. Is that right? We're waiting, of course, on the latest census data, which will be released in around the middle of this year. But everyone is expecting, well, everyone I, I think in the housing and homelessness sector is expecting we'll see a rise in homelessness. And of course, homelessness takes many forms. You know, we tend to think of people sleeping on the street, which is the most visible form of homelessness. But often uh, women and young people don't sleep openly on the street because they don't feel safe. They'll find other ways to find, you know, get a roof over their head. It might be couch surfing, obviously. It might be sleeping in their car. Um, finding a secluded spot to sleep in their in their car, it might be staying with relatives or living in overcrowded housing, and that's one form of homelessness that I expect we'll see growing. So living in severely overcrowded housing, or in improvised dwellings, you know, in a shed in the back of someone's place, or that sort of thing. Yes, we we don't. It's hard to get accurate data on homelessness, and the census is the best data we have. But we do see growing presentations to specialist homelessness services. I mean, things actually got a bit better during the pandemic, ironically enough, right? Because during the pandemic, we saw state governments step up with programs to provide accommodation for people who were sleeping rough. So all of a sudden, uh, hotel rooms are made available and there were you know, support programs put in place, not because we'd suddenly discovered homelessness, but because homeless the people who were experiencing homelessness posed a public health threat to the rest of us. So all of a sudden there was some, and a lot of useful lessons were learned in that process. And there has been some efforts to move, you know, to transition from that temporary accommodation in, in hotels and the like through to permanent and ongoing accommodation. There's a bunch of uh, local government areas now that are joining the zero homelessness movement. It starts with street homelessness and rough sleeping. And it, the first thing it does is identify who is sleeping rough. Who are they by name? Get to know people. Create a list of who is in our local government area. How many people are there sleeping rough? Who are they? What are their names? And then start to address their needs one by one. But no attempt to address homelessness for work unless we have homes for people to live in. That remains the core problem. And so we need an increase in the supply of um, homes for people on the lowest incomes. You know, as I say, some admirable efforts now by state governments, but not a coordinated national program with a lot of sort of financial grunt behind it. Is it a level playing field for all those citizens seeking rent assistance or access to social housing? Are there in your researches, you're finding anomalies between citizens in the assistance they get and the outcomes they experience. Perhaps you can give us a typical example of that. Is it a level playing field? Well, it, it's this odd amalgam, right? So we have the social housing system, or the public housing system, as I say, that was built up after World War II and, and grew quite significantly in the decades after World War II and has since the, let's say, around 1990 gone into decline. Then we've got Commonwealth Rent Assistance, which has grown up uh, as an alternative since about uh, the mid-80s. Uh, as I think I've indicated, we're doing both of those things badly. So there's not enough social housing to go around and Commonwealth rent assistance isn't paid at a high enough rate to really help people afford to rent in the private market. But it also means that we've got an inequity. If I live, if I'm lucky enough to have been able to secure um, a place in social housing, then I'm in effect, getting a much larger subsidy, a much bigger handout from the government or much larger, much higher level of support from the government 
than if I'm getting rent assistance. So let me try and give you an example. I might be living in a social housing dwelling that you know would rent out at $300 a week, but I only pay 30% of my income. So I, you know, I'll only pay 30% of my pension on that. If I had to pay the full $300, then even with rent assistance, I'd probably be paying 50% of my income to afford it. Yes, it's it's an uneven playing field in the sense that those people who are lucky enough to be in social housing are getting a higher level of financial assistance from government than those people who are in the private rental market and getting rent assistance. Going back to your opening comments, we've already endured this election campaign, and I use the word endured advisedly. Both major parties have proffered some forms of housing policies. How have you appraised those policies in general housing terms and also in the social housing context, labour policy and the shared equity, which Scott Morrison has slammed and raised the spectre of labour being at your kitchen table, etc. How have both sides of politics met the housing crisis, in your opinion? Well, both sides of politics, and this is a long uh, established practice in Australia, and it's been done by state governments as well, both are subsidising first home owners uh, with grants and the like. There are various forms this takes, but essentially helping people to get into the market with a, a grant or enabling them to get a low deposit loan by guaranteeing their acting as a kind of guarantor so they don't have to pay mortgage insurance because they don't have the 10 or 20% deposit they need. These types of um, subsidies have always been criticised for inflating the market because, you know, if the government's giving me a grant and there's a developer building and selling houses, it's likely that grant will get factored into the price of the house. They're not the most effective way. The other the other criticism is that they tend to bring forward home purchases that would have happened anyway, that someone would have eventually, you know, they would have got the deposit together over time and then purchased, been able to purchase. So they're not very equitable. They don't really distinguish as to whether you're getting help from your mum and dad as well or whether you're not the bank of the parents or the family bank, as it were. So I think that's not the most beneficial way to do things. The shared equity scheme is a bit different, and these have been around, uh, particularly in Western Australia, for quite some time now. And this is where instead of buying the whole property, you buy, say, 60% of it, and the government buys the other 40%. And so it's shared equity. And if you sell the property down the track and make a profit, then that profit will also be divided between you and, and the government. So the government gets its stake back again. Or if you move from being a low income earner to earning a much higher income, then the government might ask you to start paying back its share of the and paying off, and you might want to as well, to get to own the house outright. Now, these are interesting schemes because, for example, in Western Australia, and I've heard Anthony Albanese talking about this as well, you might have, say, an older woman who has separated from her partner and has some money from the sale of their shared home, but not enough to buy a new home for herself, but an, enough to maybe buy 60% of a home and the government buys the other 40%. What you've got there is you've, you've got someone who can have secure housing and women are amongst the most, older women are you know one of the most rapidly growing groups at risk of homelessness. Not only is fabulous for that woman to be able to move into a secure home, if she is able to do so, and instead of becoming homeless, that's saving the taxpayers lots of money and the government is not losing money because it has that equity stake which it will eventually recoup when the house is sold or or whatever so i think there's more to be said for the shared equity schemes but they're small right labor's talking about 10,000 places so again this is helpful at the margins and in particular circumstances you might have a situation too where that that person may be going to get the pension and the bank won't lend them the money but actually if the government um, is able to come up with the equity and they can get a much smaller loan, then maybe they can borrow the money and, and pay it off on their pension because they'd be paying less than they'd be paying in rent, right? So shared equity can work. And it's, you know, as I say, it's been running for a long time in, in WA, but it tends to be fairly small and fairly niche. The only policy that addresses the social housing challenge is Labor's Housing Future Fund. It's a $10 billion fund that we manage by the future fund income from the fund as i understand it will be used to build houses uh, build homes and the theory is that 
20,000 social housing dwellings will be built with that fund over, I think it's over five years. So that's good, but it's a drop in the bucket of what's needed. The best that can be said for it, and, and I did a conversation, I facilitated a conversation with some politicians um, about housing policy recently, notably the coalition failed to show up. Uh, a Labor representative was there and, and he said, look, the, the benefit of this is that it's scalable. So a clear indication has been given by Labor that if this works well, it could be built upon and could be scaled up. So that would be the best possible thing. But Labor's still creating this fairly odd kind of system where it goes off budget because they create a future fund, so it's not part of the budget. The cheapest way, the most efficient way, the quickest way for governments to build social housing is to borrow, use their, their borrowing capacity or raise revenue through the tax system and invest directly. The most efficient way to do it, but the Housing Future Fund is at least going to build some housing. And yes, if Labor wins office and scales it up, could build more. Last time we spoke in 2019, a lot of our conversation was about the great Australian dream, owning your own home, that obsession with owning your own home, and the idea of wealth storage, which is very dear to the heart of so many Australians. But now we're looking at mortgages which are just eye-watering, the price of houses is eye-watering. And I'm also interested now that we're a few years down the track, after the 2019-20 bushfires, that ensuing COVID pandemic and the recent and still very raw, I think you'll agree, effects of widespread floods affecting and shaping the actuality of housing, including social housing in Australia. And I'm thinking too of climate change, Peter, raising real questions about many populations continuing to live in flood-prone areas, floodplains and or near rivers and creeks, either in regional or indeed in urban settings. And we've seen a lot of flash flooding too. So there are forces at work, aren't there, squeezing the stock at the moment and making future dwellings look even more iffy in many parts of Australia. So putting on that wide angle lens again, how are you seeing now, further down the track, the whole housing landscape in Australia? Well, I think you're right that we're we're not moving anywhere near quickly enough to adapt our housing stock for uh, the future in terms of a much hotter climate. We're still building houses without eaves. It's not just about retrofitting old houses, it's about the new stock we're building. We're building Georgians. Wonderful. Yeah, we're we're not building things like black roofs that absorb heat, um, black driveways that absorb heat, um, loss of any kind of uh, building to the margins of the block so there's no capacity to plant trees that would throw shade. Um, You know, some of the apartment buildings we build are very energy inefficient because they don't they don't have the capacity for flow flow through ventilation. And, you know, they rely on a a constant air conditioning and and so on in hot weather. So I think, you know, we, we haven't set demanding standards of our developers. And yet if we did, I mean, the, the complaint is always, well, you're going to increase the cost of housing if you make you know, energy standards higher and, and so on. And that's true. You'll increase the cost of housing to buy and to build, but you'll reduce the cost of housing to live in over time because you'll have lower energy costs. And also, the more we do it, the cheaper all these things will become, just like solar panels have got much cheaper. So if you make them standard, then they the volume brings down the unit price and, and, and it gets easier to do. So I think we're way behind on all those sorts of design things. But the other, I mean, coming back to your other question about the great Australian dream, you know, we've got this idea that everyone wants to own their own home and, and that's, you know, it's hard to, hard to deny that's a very strong ethos in Australia. But I think it's worthwhile asking, why do we want to own, own our own homes? And there's two reasons I'd give. One is you've already pointed at. Housing is so tax protected that both as a homeowner and as an investor, it's an extremely attractive asset. And the more attractive it is, the more it becomes a speculative asset and the more its price goes up. So we see this kind of spiraling. So then I think, well, it's worth, you know, buying a house because the value of housing goes up. So I'm more likely to do it. Now, this is risky because it's, you know, 60% of Australian bank lending is in mortgages. And if interest rates go up, we will see some people at least begin to struggle to pay those mortgages. And we all know what happened in the in the global financial crisis that was sparked by 
poor lending practices in in property markets in the US and Ireland and you know Spain and other countries. So it poses huge risks for our economy overall to be so financially invested in housing. But that's one reason why the Great Australian Dream lives on, because we support it through the tax system. The other thing I'd say is that renting in Australia is often a crap experience. Renters are lack rights generally throughout Australia. Tenants, that is, rent lack rights. Um, and so, of course, we'd all rather own our own homes because as tenants, we get treated very poorly. So another way to think about this is if we reform tenancy laws around Australia, if we professionalise the rental market, I mean, let's face it, someone who buys a property investment and rents out their property, rent, becomes a landlord, is running a business. They ought to live up to certain business practices. They ought to make sure the house is in good repair, that can be kept cool and warm, that it's, you know, the doors lock and all those sort of things. The landlord is not doing the tenant a favour by letting them live in their property. It's a business transaction and we should set standards accordingly and expect the business owner to run a, a, an efficient and decent business and treat their customer properly, who is the tenant. We just don't do that in Australia. So I think much stronger protections for tenants so, so that they feel that their rental property is actually their home. They can put a picture on the wall. They can have a pet. It's their home. It's not, they're not squatters. They're not living there at the, the whim of, of, of the, the landlord. So if renting was uh, more secure in Australia, then the great Australian dream wouldn't necessarily be, by contrast, such a thing we all feel we so urgently need to get. Those things are easy to say and hard to do, but th there are measures we could take to improve tenants' rights and to change the way we tax housing that would reduce the level of speculation. And we don't want to crash housing prices. That would be a disaster for everyone. But we do want to stop them going up and up and up, as they've done over the last 20 years. And changing the tax mix would be one way to help do that. Let's bring our conversation to a close, really continuing on that thought you have spent a long time in this housing space researching, and as recently as last Friday, as you mentioned, you ran a seminar with politicians involved looking at housing, and you've heard a lot of different opinions flow, flow through your brain. So I'm assuming, and I guess I'm right, that you must have thought long and hard about potential feasible solutions to Australia's housing crisis, generally the stubborn existence of homelessness and the social housing crisis itself. I want to ask you this, Peter. Is capitalism itself the main obstacle here? You talked about money and it, every time I ask people about all this sort of thing, it comes back to money, that well-baked-in profit motive. And it's not only in housing, is it? We see this in other policy areas such as health, education, childcare and aged care as well, and particularly in aged care, with so many people slurping off the public dollar in aged care and childcare. Can real and meaningful reform and improved housing outcomes only come from more deterministic government intervention in those structural givens of capitalism and those ideological assumptions. What's your take on that? Well, my take is that we live in a, a market-based economy, so we live in a capitalist society. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And markets can be really effective ways of distributing goods and also can be effective spurs for innovation and change. So I'm not I wouldn't say that, you know, I don't like the binary of capitalism or not, but I would say that all markets need to be regulated and designed. I mean, they're not, no market is pure. Capital gains tax discounts on property investments after 12 months, that's an intervention in the market. It skews the market in a particular direction. So does the ability to claim the interest you pay on your investment property as a tax deduction against income that is not earned from that property, but earned from something completely different. Most countries wouldn't allow that, that you could offset your interest payments on your investment property against your income as a surgeon or an anaesthetist or a barrister or what have you. These are ways in which we create markets by setting up tax systems and, and so on. So it's about the intelligent design of markets and the intelligent design of regulation and looking at where the unintended consequences are and, and so on. But yes, in the end, I mean, it does come back to, we have a consensus in Australia that government has a role to play in education. Every child, regardless of their family's income, should have access to schooling through until the end of high school at a decent, acceptable level. That's standard. We accept that. Everyone accepts that. 
We say the same about health. Every Australian family should have access to healthcare regardless of their income. Now these systems like Medicare and public schooling are not perfect, but they are there as available to everyone regardless of income. We need to think about housing in the same way. Not that the state provides everyone's housing, but that the state is there to make sure that everyone has housing to an acceptable level. That's the role of the state. That's the role of government. That's why we pay taxes, is to provide a base level of services. And why would we do that? Well, because if we're making all these investments in, in people's education and their health, and we're not investing in their housing, it's like three legs of a stool. It falls over. If you don't have good housing, you will not be healthy. You cannot learn because you're constantly going to be you know, hungry or uh, because all the money's gone on the rent or you're having to move house all the time. So you're constantly in different schools because you haven't got secure housing. So I think of housing like health and education, a basic building block of a stable life. And government's role is to ensure that everyone has those three things, access to education, access to healthcare and access to decent housing. I think you'll agree, Peter, that many of our fellow citizens heading to the polls on the 21st of May will have some aspect of the various parties' housing policy front of mind. It's a very influential factor as people come to cast their vote. Thank you so much for being with us in the Transit Zone today, and I hope helping to clarify some of those minds. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Our guest this time in the Transit Zone, Peter Mayers. He's Program Director with the Kranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership and author of that 2018 book, published by Text Publishing, No Place Like Home, Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis. I've included, as I usually do, a number of useful links in the on-screen text for this podcast so you can extend your research around housing in Australia beyond what you heard in today's podcast. If you'd like to email us at The Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. TransitZonePod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon, right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit, the transit Zone. zone.